Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Happy New Year to everyone out there, and welcome to the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner, and I am here with Yankee Mom, who is a self-taught scholar of history. And we are going to explore the world of the American Revolution through the eyes of women, something that you probably have never heard in all of your women's studies out there, because they didn't want to tell you that women were good, and women were strong, and women were brave and really contributed to winning this revolution. But here on this show, that is exactly what we're going to do. Now, how are you doing tonight, Yankee Mom? I'm doing just fine, thank you. How's the weather down there in Texas land? Finally civilized again. Got warm. It's warmed up and it's supposed to get a little warmer. We've been down in the 30s at night, which is, you know, I could be in Virginia and have that. <laughs> Oh, I thought Texas. Texas is, is has very um, schizophrenic weather. I have decided there is absolutely every single solitary type of weather in Texas. That was one of the reasons that we didn't. You said also was getting populated when we traveled the world, which was the whole North American continent, including Alaska. And that's what I call the world because I don't really don't give a crap about the rest of the world. This is the world, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and that was one of the reasons, besides the, the large population growth. But, you know, after we traveled the second time, uh, Yankee Mom, we just realized that there really is no place where people are not going to be. So we changed our criteria to climate, you know, humidity because of my husband's chronic illnesses. And also there were health mines here. Radon Health Mines, which people come from all over the world and all over the country to sit. Yes, they sit in, in a cave in a radon, and it supposedly helps arthritis. Well, it did wonders for his chronic fatigue. So that was the criteria because we even went to Alaska. We were in Fairbanks, okay? They were growing so fast in a place called the North Pole. And yes, folks, there is a place called North Pole. It's North Pole, Alaska. <laughs> It's right outside of, of Fairbanks, and yes, they do have a Santa's workshop, and it's year run, it's open year round, and they have little elves running around. Um, not real elves, you know what I'm saying? But yeah, it's called the North Pole. But I was there for nine months, Yankee Mom, and they were building so many subdivisions in the North Pole. It was making my head spin because I was a home health nurse, so I would have patients there. Every time I turned around, a new building was going up. I'm going, this is Alaska. It gets like a hundred below. It's like dark for half the year. <laughs> what are these people crazy? Because that was Brian said it was the final frontier, and that's what his goal was to reach the final frontier. There's no such thing. No, no, not anymore. Because anything that isn't populated is owned by the federal government in this country right now, unfortunately. Yeah, I know it. Um, 
this Oregon thing. I'm waiting to see what happens. I don't really want to comment on it. I'm kind of frightened because, well, you and I have talked off air. This They move too soon. We need yeah. to get our seats back first because the states are going to hang us out to dry. Yeah, yeah, it's... It, that's very true, and but unfortunately, the uh, two ranchers involved um, don't have any time. They're reporting for prison, which is ridiculous if you read the the backstory to the I did. whole thing. Uh, I they did. got screwed. Um, I don't. I don't want to comment on the militia either because I'm. I don't. I haven't kept up with the latest of uh, I didn't get to see anything about it today so I don't want to talk about that but the ranchers are you know, and ranchers have been getting screwed by the DLM for, and the federal it, government forever yeah <laughs> and unfortunately this is something that Brian and I do have to really monitor because mm-hmm. we live in the middle of a national forest yeah. I'm surrounded by national forest you can go maybe a half a mile, maybe even a quarter of a mile. No, not even. Just down my driveway, right at the bottom of my driveway, starts federal land. Right at the bottom of where my driveway is, and my driveway is maybe about 100, 200 yards. Right there, boom, there's a sign. So, yeah, um, yeah. we're right in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. Look, it's all unconstitutional. They shouldn't, they have no right to, to state lands at all. It's None. They they stole the this they stole the land and the states allowed them to do it and that's it's ridiculous. Again, we have to take our states back. All right. Well, tonight we are going to do a very special girl. We have had girls on this show before. Civil Longington, I think she was the only one that was uh, about the same age as this young lady, uh, 16. Uh, but she actually was born, and I'll read more about her. Her name is Hannah and. Ingraham, and she is a loyalist refugee. We do, we alternate between patriots and loyalists on this show, women. So it's up this time with loyalists, last time it was a patriot. We were down in the Southern Theater last time, now we're going to be in the Middle Theater. Uh, there's three theaters the Northern, the Middle, and the Southern Theater uh, of, uh, I guess you would call it wartime, uh, what, what was the stages? I, I don't know the, the correct word to say. I, I could write it down. I'm more of a writer than a, than a speaker. Um, but she is a refugee. We've talked about the refugees before. We've talked about loyalists before. we talked about that this was a civil war. It pitted husband against wife, mother against father, um, you know, son against father, uh, a whole host of people, you know, neighbor against neighbor. And in this case, Fortunately for us, Hannah's journey and Hannah's involvement in the revolution is pretty well damn documented. Most of the women that we do write Yankee Mom, we have a hard time finding anything about them. We usually just go what was surrounding them at the time, right? Right. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's just basically it, it was sometimes the only way that they they know that this person existed was because the story was told um, in a letter to to someone. You know, the, or they George Washington had a letter from uh, someone telling him about this person's activities, and 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 you know, either 
for or against the war and in his papers because he he saved all his papers. But so many, so many of the, uh, you know, um, any any letters or correspondence or journals uh, either have never been written or they've been lost or, you know, buildings catch on fire and people don't realize, you know, what they have in their attic or in their house burns down. So it, it's really hit or miss, and uh, we're so lucky to have what we have. But in, and, and in finding out, I didn't know we had as much as we have because it's just been wonderful doing the research for this. And um, God bless all the people who who have um, written the books. The books are coming out fast and furious, and I just love it that there's such good books out there now, and they're starting to write about the women. Oh. Well, and I think the reason is because of the climate of, of our nation right now. Um, they're feeling that people are more susceptible to history because they want to know what, what, why are we where, where we are right now. The founding fathers never envisioned this. They made sure that we had uh, fail-safes so that we wouldn't become a tyrannical uh, society, government, however you want to call it, because the minorities are the tyranny in this country right now. And I think they, that they realize it's more of a, a climate for people to want to know this information now than ever before. And we are, and you're going to have to agree with me, ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a new year, 2016. I don't give a crap about the election. We're losing our country. You need to go and read the Declaration of Independence, and you need to read it to your children, and you need to discuss it with your neighbors. Right now, where we are is where the Declaration of Independence we are where that was right now at this moment. The grievances in the Declaration of Independence are almost exactly what we're going through right now. So 2016 will be the year that I'm calling for everyone to educate themselves on our history. The only way we're getting out of this is if we will go back in history like Yankee Mom and I are doing right now, learn from it, and then take it as the Founding Fathers gave us the strength and knock everybody that's in our way out get freedom back again. So do you have anything to comment real quick on the new year? No, not right now. Okay. All right, so let's start with Hannah. During the American Revolution, many Americans known as loyalists supported the British government. This is from scholars, WLU.ca, California. When the war ended in an American victory, about 40,000 loyalists became refugees and made their way to Canada. One of these refugees was Hannah Ingraham. Now, I'm going to stop right there because I'll give you a little background. So we are going to be discussing her memoirs, which she, well, in this essay it's going to say, but I'll just do it real brief. She did the memoirs way after the, the war was over, and she was an, uh, an older adult. But there's just such a font of information about what these people went through because they really weren't the enemy. Uh, they were just caught up in this civil war. They, they agreed with a lot of things that the Patriots did, and of course there's always going to be bad players. Um, but they really thought that they would be safer under the crown. They were afraid of liberty, and that's what's happening now in this country. Everyone's afraid of liberty. They just are. They think it's just easier to have the government hold their hand, and that's not true. So these people pretty much were afraid of liberty. So born in the British colony of New York, that's the middle theater, Hannah Ingraham was three years old when the American Revolution broke out in 1775. 
11 when it ended in 1783. Now, I'm going to keep stopping because this is very important for me to hit home, and I want Yankee Mom to opine as well. This, as many children, was a child that knew nothing but war in their early lives. They didn't grow up in peace. They didn't grow up in the prosperity that the, that the colonists had, were enjoying for so long until the king came and sma- tried to smash them. They only knew the horrors of war. Now, I want you to opine on that, but then I want to stop right here because we're saying she's 3 to 11. And I, uh, Yankee Mom, did you find anything on the colonial children? Oh, I did, yes. Oh, good. So then uh, she's going to take over right now. We're going to discuss colonial women's um, children because it's really important that they were brought up different than us. They had different uh, concerns, the parents did, than we have right now. So Mm -hmm. let's start with that. Okay. Well, yeah, she, and and you have to remember that uh, her family were on the other side of the rebels, otherwise known as patriots. They were loyal to the crown. And as we get more into her story, you know, and we talk about what was going on, as, as we have touched on in, in other shows, if you were a loyalist, um, it wasn't a pleasant experience for you in, in many uh, colonies and communities. So here she is, a three-year-old, and I believe, let's see, um, she had... An older brother, I think. Her brother was older. Yeah, yeah, she was the second child. But anyway, when you were a a child in uh, 18th century America, um, and this is fascinating, and and I I found a book. It's a wonderful book, and I wish I hadn't um, hit the the page and make it go away. I'm going to have to look in my history. But it's a a book on childhood, the history of childhood, and and they cover... um, from when, you know, people came in, you know, in the, the 1600s up until the, the 20th century. And it's just fascinating reading, and I kind of got caught up in it, and I wish I had bookmarked it. <laughs> I'll find it again. Um, but this is this is the book, The World of the American Revolution, A Daily Life Encyclopedia, and it's two volumes, which is edited by Merrill D. Smith, Ph.D., and the chapter that they have here on um, the children, um, he begins with the chapter on childhood. It's, he says, in a revolutionary America, nearly half the population was under the age of 16. Childhood was a period of work, study, and play with the balance tilted toward work. Children's daily activities were determined more by their gender, race, class, and location than by their age. During the revolutionary era, Enlightenment ideas reshaped American attitudes toward childbearing and education, placing new emphasis on learning through discovery and on children's individuality and self-determination. 18th century Americans recognized several distinct phases of childhood. Infants, including toddlers, were relatively helpless. They spent their time sleeping or playing beside their parents or older siblings, gradually learning the activities of the household. Boys and girls were usually dressed alike at this age. Around age five, boys were breached, and both boys and girls assumed more chores. Most white children learned to read at some point, either at school or from parents and siblings. Childhood was followed by a long period of youth, stretching from the early 
teens to the early 20s, during which boys and girls did the same work as men and women, but usually under supervision as servants, apprentices, or dependents in their parents' households. A small number of boys pursued secondary and higher education. Most 18th century Americans did not marry and had households until sometime in their 20s. Elsewhere in 18th century America, children's daily lives were closely entwined with those of adults. Most children grew up in a large household with several siblings, and in some cases, live-in relatives, boarders, servants, or slaves as well. Children spent most of their time at home, around their neighborhoods, on farms, and in workshops. Though some attended school, terms were short and classes were often ungraded. Four-year-olds might study in the same classroom as 16-year-olds. Few settings were segregated by age, though certain tasks, such as carrying water, running errands, tending livestock, and copying letters were often reserved for children or teenagers. While 18th century Americans recognized childhood as a distinct phase of life requiring guidance and supervision, there was no clearly demarcated standard path to adulthood for American children in the 18th century. Children began work and schooling at various varying ages and in varying circumstances. Many received no formal education at all. Parental death or illness, financial crisis, natural disasters, and war suddenly reshaped the lives and prospects of many free children. While enslaved could I, children... Could I interrupt real quick? Real quick. The, uh, the, by the way, the stark difference that parents and older siblings and you know other relatives, they watched these children. You know, what to, our children are left to their own devices now. I know. I mean, I know. someone found. You know, and plus people didn't, um, well, if you were in the upper crust, you had uh, certain duties that you had to perform as a, you know, a person of means. But for the most part, you worked at home because basically everything you had, I mean, you had to. It wasn't like you could just run to the grocery store and buy dinner and cook it up, you know, and things had to be to be made and and uh, like clothes, all the clothes. Um, you didn't run around like we do today. And families, uh, you know, once and most people that lived, uh, you know, they, you know, your average person, not like Sam Adams or John Adams or Benjamin Franklin, uh, but you know, your your basic families, they never went out, you know, out further than. 20 miles outside their villages. You know, families stay together. Couldn't afford to build another house. You know, you had to to, uh, do everything in your power to keep the one you had built. Well, you know, so it it was really different. And, And there was always somebody around unless you're both your parents died, which has happened. There were illnesses and you know, you're out on the farm and you're you're probably five miles away from anybody, you know, and maybe ten miles from town and and both your parents succumb to the illness and one of your siblings has to go and find somebody to help you out, but all of a sudden you're orphaned. It happened quite a bit. And hopefully there was an uncle living with you or something, you know. <laughs> 
But that's mostly on it. By this time, that was mostly on the in the frontiers, you know, in the outskirts of the the populated areas, um, you know, more inland, away from the the coast, because the coasts were very urbanized. Okay, so I continue now as I'm looking for my place. Okay. Yep, continue. Yes. Many free children, okay, all right. Parental death or illness, financial crisis, natural disasters, and war suddenly reshaped the lives and prospects of many free children while enslaved children were ever vulnerable to being transferred to other work sites or sold away from their families. Many free children who could have remained with their parents until adulthood left home during their teens to serve apprenticeships, live with relatives, or work in other households. Sending older children into other households allowed them to learn vocational skills, meet new people, and see new places. It also tempered parents' anxiety that they might spoil their children. Military service was another common reason for leaving home. About one-third of adolescent boys participated in warfare. Adolescent boys participated in warfare against the Native Americans, French or British, between 1740 and 1781. Approximately one-fifth of 18th century American children lived in slavery. The great majority of these children were American-born, though some arrived from Africa, Africa or the Caribbean via the slave trade. In the 17th century and early 18th century, high mortality rates and an uneven gender ratio made it extremely difficult for enslaved Africans to form stable families. By the late 18th century, demographic conditions had improved enough to allow many enslaved men and women to raise their children in relatively stable two-parent households. In some cases, the father lived elsewhere but visited regularly. Even so, extended family and fictive kin were vitally important in the slave community. These relationships could boy up children whose nuclear families were broken by death or sale. Slave children were put to work from an early age, cleaning, babysitting, gardening, carrying water, running errands. On large plantations, children began regular field work at about age 10. Some boys learned specialized trades, but children who grew up in slavery received no academic education. This is an interesting little side note here. It goes, The clothing of toddlers often had long ribbons or strings of fabric that were sewn to the shoulders of their frocks. These leading strings, as they were called, were used to guide children as they learned to walk. They may also have been used to restrain particularly exuberant children. In the late 18th century, leading strings were becoming less popular as ideas about childhood were changing. They also kept them in stays. Um, like a corset, both boys and girls, to make sure they had a proper posture. They tied them up right from birth. And um, and if you've ever seen a colonial-era cradle, you'll notice how very long it is compared to the width. Um, it's because they believed that the child should be able to stretch out his legs, his or her legs, and that led to straight legs and good posture. So they were in stays, and they were allowed to to stretch out their legs. This is before they could walk. And they didn't like them to crawl. And the stays kind of helped that with that, too, because they felt that a crawling baby was too much and clo- too close to being 
animalistic or, you know, bestial. So they didn't let them crawl. I mean, they get up, you get up, and you walk. And then we put the stays on you. It's very fascinating what they did. I just, I just enjoyed myself reading. I'm going to have to really look more into this. Okay. Around 1750, Enlightenment ideas began to reshape American attitudes for childhood and child rearing. John Locke's writings on government, psychology, and education were particularly influential. And if you haven't read John Locke, you should, because he was uh, one of the the, the uh, voices behind our founding fathers. Um, the works of Locke and other Enlightenment philosophers led Americans, beginning, of course, with the most educated, to see children as highly individual, rational, and malleable beings. The Enlightenment challenged family hierarchies, offering a parenting model of affectionate guidance rather than stern authority. It also popularized educational approaches that emphasized discovery and deduction over rote memorization. By the early 19th century, formal education became a more prominent feature of American childhood, especially for middle-class child children. The American Revolution had both immediate and far-reaching effects on children's lives. Preteen and teenage boys were prominent in the urban unrest that characterized the first decade of the struggle for independence. Many teenage boys fought in the Revolutionary War, sometimes in places in place of fathers or older brothers whose presence was more urgently needed at home. Drummer boys could be as young as 12. At home, girls and boys participated in campaigns to dress in homespun and help manufacture provisions and bullets for American troops. Many suffered financial reverses due to the absence or death of their fathers. The transition to Republican government and the popular rhetoric likening Britain to a bad parent reinforced Americans' turn toward new models of childhood and child-rearing. By 1800, American children with the exception of those growing up in slavery, enjoyed more freedom and self-determination than their grandparents had half a century earlier. And that was uh, written by Darcy R. Fryer. Um, and if you want uh, further reading, there's a, a book that was written in 1899 by Alice Morse Earl, Child Life in Colonial Days. Boy, I'd like to get my hands on that. And... Uh, C. Dallet Hemphill, 2011, uh, published Siblings, Brothers and Sisters in American History. There's a lot of books out there. Uh, I've read some, um, but I hadn't come across this one or the one that I hope I can find again. But it was basically, in the 1600s, it was very, very strict, especially the Puritans. They believed that the, the community was the uh, parent more so than the family, that your behavior uh, was to promote the community, your good behavior was to, to promote the, the and keep a healthy community versus just a nuclear family. Um, you were more, you were more um, uh, viewed on by the community. So the family was to make sure that you were a upstanding and uh, productive part of the, of the fabric of the society. Whereas in, when the Enlightenment came, um, much more compassion towards children and in recognizing them as um, not so much little adults, but 
uh, or small adults, but they were children and they were individuals. And, they, you know, you didn't have to do all the same stuff. And you could have independent thought. So, But they, they were all worked hard. They all helped around the house. The, the youngest ones, you know, fed the livestock and, and they gathered the eggs and and uh, brought in the wood for the, the fires, you know, that they cooked on. And they helped sew the, the girls. And it was. It was basically the males. Um, worked outside mostly, and the, the girls did the household stuff. But everybody was out in the fields um, if they needed them, or they were, you know, wherever they needed to be. So, so that's the childhood of the seventeenth uh, or the eighteenth century uh, American. So, again, it, it's really fascinating. When you get down into the weeds of it, and you you see what they uh, what they wore, what they ate, you know how they were raised, and what how you know what they learned. Yeah, they probably knew more than we do. Our kids do now, unfortunately. Well, and what you're talking about the community is not what the Prague and like uh, what the hell, Melissa Harris Perry. I have her um, soundbite. That yes. we have yes. to, yeah, we have to have the, the once we think of the children as as a community and not just with their parents. That's not what we're taught. That's not what they were were all about. They, no, they didn't have government in their lives. No, it was the, it was their religion. It was the religion. The church was the center. There wasn't much, you know. They had the government, but um, it wasn't like we know it today. The church was the center of, of everybody's lives. Um, you were more concerned with what the minister knew about you than what the government knew about you. Right. And, you know, they they believed in liberty. They believed in privacy. And like you said, it was up to the parents to make sure that this child was a good steward of his community and not to be running amok. That's what, that's what these people mean, not what they're talking about now. They were yeah. talking about responsibility. Their responsibility to the community was to keep these children in check and make sure that they were strong, that they were a part of, a strong part and was not bringing the community down. That's exactly. the big difference. Yeah, it is. It is. It's... It, um... It was controlling in the aspect. The difference was they were forming a citizen of the community, a, a productive citizen of the community to make the community better, whereas the progressives are thinking of a worker bee, you know, right. a, exactly. a particular that they yeah. can control and, and have it be, um, you know, productive. But that's about it. You know, right. you weren't going to go on in any any kind of grand anything. It was, you were just going to do your job and go home and raise your, you know, 1.2 children if they allowed you and, uh, you know, go back to the factory in the morning. That wasn't it at all. Okay, so we're going to continue with Hannah. So she was 11 years old when it when it. The revolution ended in 1783. 
Growing up in a loyalist family, trapped behind enemy lines, she passed her childhood facing privation, privation, separation from her father, harassment by her neighbors, and persecuted, persecuted excuse me, by committee men dispensing revolutionary justice. Okay, I'm going to have to stop again because we do have to clarify all this. And Yankee Mom is going to do the clarifying while I do Hannah's story. So we need to get into what these committee men were because they were very important to the loyalists. They, they had the fate of you, your fate in their hands if you chose to stay where you are and still um, profess your uh, loyalty to the crown. So the committee men, um, I'm thinking, of, were part of the Committee of Safety. Did you find that out? Yes, yes. Um, in fact, another book. <laughs> I love these books. Oh, there's so many books I would love to have. This is New York and the Revolution, a supplement. And they say, this is very interesting, and it's, um, you'll have to bear with me because they have a lot of uh, names and, and, and lists of people. So I'm, I'm going to try to just give you the, the uh, important parts here. But it's, like I said, it's a book, and I have to go from here to there. Okay, and this is about the commissioners of conspiracies. Now, and this is in New York where she was growing up, you know, she, New Concord was um, upper uh, northern New York. So there is much confusion in the documents as to the time when the Committee for Conspiracies ended its duties and the commissioners of conspiracies began their work. This arose from the committee men sometimes calling themselves commissioners and vice versa. An account of the committee commencing September 28, 1776 and ending January 11, 1777 is certified as a true copy from the minutes of the commissioners and signed by Tunis Tappan as clerk to the commissioners. Okay, so that, that pretty much gives you the time period that they started, that they were, they were going on. And this did come out of the Committee of Safety uh, as we'll get into here. Um, they, they name all these uh, commissioners that we don't um, need to know. Uh, other laws um, relating to the commissioners of conspiracies were passed as follows. The commissioners in, uh, in 1778, the commissioners were authorized to require all suspects to take the oath of allegiance. October uh, 1778, the powers of the commissioners were continued. February 79, a similar law. October 79, the powers of the commissioners, which had lapsed, were revived, and the council appointment was authorized to appoint the commissioners. Um, let's see. For the, uh, the law relating to the appointment was revived for the removal of the families of persons who have joined the enemy, but the commissioners were authorized to give permits to remain. And in uh, March 8, 1783, the acts relating to the commissioners were repealed. From the date of these laws, it is evident that a great part of the work of the commissioners was done in their capacity as a committee of the convention or under the governor's order of April 4, 1777, and before any legislative enactment. They carried on the work along the lines laid out by the original committee. They bought muskets for the soldiers and apprehended Tories and suspected persons. They provided food for the guards and the prisoners, also medicines for the latter. Together with the commissioners for the several counties, they had general charge of all persons who were suspected or apprehended. Um, 
The uh, commissioners of conspiracies for the several counties consisted in some cases of of others besides those appointed by the order of the governor of 1778. They attended to details which it was impossible for the state commissioners to handle, and they were paid 20, uh, oh, I can't read it, 20-something per day. I imagine it was probably 20 tenths or something. Um, they tell you who they were. Um, then it goes, the Committee of the Provincial Congress to Apprehend Tories consisted of Louis Graham, John Schloss, Obert, and Henry Ramson. A law was passed early in the war for the removal of the families of persons who had joined the enemy. This provided that because of the information given to the enemy by the wives of those who had fled, the justices of the peace or in their absence the supervisors or in the absence of both justices and supervisors, the commissioners of conspiracies should give notice to the said wives to depart this state or to go to the enemy's lines within the state within 20 days with their children not above 12 years of age. Failing to depart, they should be treated as enemies of the state. Permission to remain might be given by the above-named authorities to parties of good character and not dangerous to the state of New York or to the United States. And uh, it shows, um, it lists the, uh, I mean, it's quite a list, too, of suspected persons. Um, gosh, I, I um, about 200 here, at least. Um uh, in the above list, it will be noted that many of the names appear also among the British prisoners of war. In several cases, a more full investigation proved the innocence of the alleged offender so that the appearance of a name in the above list or among the prisoners is not always a badge of dishonor as viewed from the American standpoint. Um, let's see. Uh, okay. And we also, they have a list of the uh, British prisoners of war, but we'll get into that a little later. Um, This is a fascinating book, too, because it talks about uh, how how New York, and especially the Hudson River, now we've talked about how important the Hudson area was to the British and the Americans. So this this uh, book tells the nitty gritty of what went on. Um, you know, it, it 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 we I didn't know that the 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 uh, that there was a, a committee of conspiracies. You know, I mean, I knew that they dealt with the Tories, but I didn't realize that the committee of safety. Um, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they had a Department of Conspiracies, which, you know, sounds very um, 18, 1984-ish. And the Council of Safety was uh, in charge of the the ship prisons, which we'll be getting into um, in a bit, too. So this is just fascinating to me. So that is your Committee of Conspiracies, and they they went about apprehending the suspected Tories. Well, and think about this. This child 
was born and grew up in an atmosphere of total mistrust. Her community was completely ripped apart. She never knew what, how the colonists were before this, you know, how much they loved each other and trusted each other. And, you know, I mean, there was always going to be bad players, but by and large, everyone pretty much got along. And if you didn't, like you said, with the Puritans being so strict and uh, most of the colonists being extremely religious, you know, if you stepped out of line, you know, they would bring you in, and then they would give you a second chance or they'd exile you with one or the other. But in this atmosphere that she's growing up in, that's not the case. You know, this is, this really bothers me on a couple of different levels because it did show, you know, even though they were the, sort of a, as the enemy, they were saying, you know, like even in her house, well, why do, why do these colonists, mommy and daddy, why do they want to get away from King George? Why can't we just stay the way we are? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It must have been very confusing. Um especially up in, you know, let's see, the area she grew up in, New Concord, was like 50 miles north of Albany. And okay, why don't, why don't you get into that while we're talking about it? Okay, let me get back to that then. I have these PDFs and things, and I have to get back to yeah, my... Yeah, that's really, this is a good segue, because we're, we're talking about her growing up, and now you can say, yeah. say the area where she grew up. Right, and I have to find that little portal tablet, Wally. Little tablet, yes. Okay, here we go. Okay. Um. Okay. The, the the New Concord, New York, is in uh Albany County. For those of you who are from Northern uh, New York, uh, because let's see, Albany is about two hours from New York City, from your neck of the woods north of, of New York City. So New York City was a, a very loyalist place. Um, and this is up towards uh, Canada. So try to think of it that way up the Hudson River. Um, okay. The groundwork for New Concord was laid in 1754 when a group of 43 Connecticut land speculators met with representatives of the Mahican Indian Nation, also known as the Stockbridge Indians or Mohicans, to purchase six miles square of Indian land on the Massachusetts-New York border. See, this is my territory. Yeah, I, was, I grew up practically on the Massachusetts-New York border. So, Eventually, the land became the northeast quadrant of Columbia County. The purchase price, 250 pounds New York money, consummated on November 22, 1758. A decade later, around 1764, John B.B. of Kent, Connecticut, one of the Yankee speculators, led a group of his fellow Yankees to occupy a section of the six-mile square that was to become the future New Concord. At that time, ownership of the land was claimed by both the heirs of the Dutch patroons and the Yankees, who were regarded as squatters by the patroons. The disputed titles to the settlers' lands were not settled, by the state legislature until 1788. Before 1772, the settlers had no formal government. Their only government was the Congregational Church, to which the settlers and their leadership belonged. The settlers were largely of Puritan background, with a few of Pilgrim, that is, Massachusetts heritage. 
By today's standards, they would be regarded as religious fundamentalists. When government came to the area in the form of the King's District of Albany County, New Concord was officially recognized as one of its six subdistricts at the district's first meeting on May 5, 1772. As such, its area extended from New Canaan, a subdistrict on its east border, to the Kinderhook District of Albany County on the west. In 1788, the name of the King's District was changed to Canaan, and in 1795, the town of Chatham was created from portions of Canaan and Kinderhook, causing the hamlet of New Concord to be split between Canaan and Chatham. So, it says, um, New Concord was organized as a large geographical entity about 1764, but has been progressively reduced to a smaller area as adjacent towns, that is, Chatham and New Canaan, have grown. In the present era, we don't have our own post office, our own zip code, or any official political entities. Nonetheless, the diminished New Concord of today remains a particularly scenic, cordial piece of rural New York State countryside with its own societal fabric. So, it's um, yeah, they were there. I mean, they—they they, it was new. It was a new area um, when they were living there. So she grew up in, you know, an uh, unpopulated area of New York. Right. So she grew up in a rural area. She wasn't um in she wasn't in New York City during the siege of New York. And they had been dealing with natives as well because we've talked about this area before. Right. And uh, yeah, so she was she was a little rural girl on a farm. Mhm. Okay, so we talked about the committee men. So here she is. She's all the way, and she's far away from any urban area, and still the committee men and still the patriots are going to be around and harass her. She doesn't know has no idea what it's like to live in a place where your neighbor trusts you and you're helping one another and you're all going to church together. That is not her life. I mean, her life is being afraid. Her life is suspicion. Her life is very much being afraid, of going without. So let's, we're going to do more of her. While she yeah. sailed, armies clashed, and diplomats bickered, Hannah Ingraham and her mother waged a quiet, desperate struggle for survival in an ugly civil war where freedom was for the politically reliable and mothers and children became enemies of the state. After the war, the family fled to Canada. Thousands of American children endured similar traumas during the war. Yet if Hannah Ingraham's childhood was typical, her story is exceptional. In the mid-19th century, when she was an old woman, Hannah dictated her reminiscences to a neighbor, Cornelia Tippett. Um, Let's see. In the early instance of what we today would call oral history, Cornelia wrote it down as nearly as possible in the language of the narrator, meaning we're going to, when I read her memoirs, it's going to be in a little girl's language. So it's very interesting, but again, she's a little girl. The result was a powerful memoir that allows us to see the loyalist experience of the American Revolution through the eyes of a frightened child. We have been doing this show for a very long time, ladies and gentlemen. I am so happy we found this. We have never, ever done it from a perspective of a, of a child. A young adult, yes, like I said, Sybil Lovington, 
And her, her, she didn't say it in her own words, though. People wrote about her. This little child is going to say it in her own words. This is a godsend, as far as I'm concerned. Hannah Ingraham's story begins in New Concord, New York, which Yankee Mom just described, where her parents, Benjamin and Jerusha, Barriott Ingraham, were committed loyalists. In the June of 1776, when local rebels began a roundup of politically suspected adult males, Benjamin fled to the forest and joined a band of loyalist partisans. On October 5, 1776, Hannah witnessed the arrest of her father when he came home for a clandestine visit. Condemned to imprisonment until the end of hostilities, he escaped five days later and returned to the forest. When the onset of winter made concealment in the forest more difficult, the partisans made their way to British-held territory. There, Benjamin enlisted as a private in the King's American Regiment on December 20, 1776. Raised by a warrant dated December 11, 1776, this regiment served with distinction in New England, New York, and the South. Placed on the British establishment December 25, 1782, it disbanded on October 10, 1783, after the end of the Revolutionary War. These are all these years that she's growing up without a father. While Benjamin served, the persecution of the Ingraham family continued. Superbly organized at the local level, the rebels formed district committees or committees of safety, empowered to take any action necessary to suppress dissidents, including arbitrary arrest and confiscation of property. The committee men of King's District inflicted both these measures upon Ingraham non-combatants. After Benjamin's departure, the rebels confiscated his farm of 93 acres. They left his wife one cow and four sheep and made her pay rent for the use of the farm. Hannah's grandfather, Benjamin Ingraham Sr., age 63, was arrested in 1777 by the King's District Committee and held in a notorious prison. Confined aboard ships anchored in the Hudson River, the Loyalist prisoners suffered starvation and severe abuse. On, 4, on October 4, 1777, unable to endure this treatment any longer, Hannah's grandfather took an oath of allegiance to the rebel government and won his release. Now, I'm going to stop there because I had asked Yankee Mom to look up about these, uh, these ships, these fleet prisons, because I wasn't sure if this accounting of how they were treated was correct. And I don't know, did you get anything on that? Yes. Um... Let me find it now. I have to because I know that they were the British were very cruel to us. Uh, very very okay. cruel. Yes, it, it was. Um, oh, that's the wrong one. I have to go up to the next. But I wasn't here. too sure how we treated our prisoners because I know George Washington would have not put up with it. No, no. Um, in fact, it was very very interesting. Oh, here we go. Um, what I found out as I'm waiting for the my little accurate um, my reader thing here. Okay, now again in this book, it was very interesting how they they uh, talked about the fleet prison, and this is what he was on, and this this tells a bit about it. And again, it, it gets into statistics and stuff, but I also have another uh. Uh, page I can go to. The Council of Safety also took charge of the most interesting of the prisons. I'm sure that the prisoners didn't think so. That on board of ships 
anchored off Esophus, Kingston, known as the Fleet Prison. On May 27, 1777, the council appropriated 120 pounds to the use of Gilbert Livingston and Major Jacobus Van Zandt, or either of them, a committee appointed by the recent convention to provide vessels for the disaffected, and this is all in quotes, uh, apprehended in Rhinebeck and Livingston Manor. One of the ships was the Camden, afterward destroyed by the enemy. <laughs> oh, my, my little grandson just came in. So if you hear a little voice, you'll know it's him. Um, one of the ships was the Camden, afterward destroyed by the enemy. Several ships were built in May, June, May and June 1777, and Mr. Livingston's accounts mentioned 32 trees cut on Mr. Gasbeck's land. Other of the ships were seized. The comments on the two following claims are by the um, Auditor General, and it talks about uh, getting money back for... Um, you know, the sails and the anchor and the cable and all that. Now, okay, the ship's being ready for use. The council passed these directions. In Council of Safety for the State of New York, Kingston, June 1777, resolve that Mr. Holbert, Mr. J., and Mr. Kyler be and hereby are appointed a committee to regulate the fleet prison and to appoint proper officers for the same. In pursuance of the above resolution, the committee therein named have established... Oh, he didn't want to leave, Grandma. <laughs> Sorry about that. In pursuance of the above resolution, the committee therein named have established the regulations for the fleet prison and appointed the following officers for the same. One, that all the sluice or vessels, which may from time to time compose the fleet prison, together with all the prisoners on board the same, be under the care and custody of the warden thereof, um, let's see, it goes on and on. Uh, to deliver three times a week in spring, summer, and autumn, and twice a week in winter to the victualler, the name of all such of the prisoners as may not be able or not choose to provide themselves with provisions that he enter the name in a book, that he condemn all such provisions sent to the prison by the victualler as may not be found in wholesome and keep an account thereof. Basically, I mean, there's, there's, um, Oh, my God, there's about, let's see, there's four paragraphs with, you know, four or five um, points in, under each paragraph of how they will take care of these prisoners. And, and they were talking about the, the British prisoners or, you know, the Tories or British soldiers. Um, it, 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 it was very, very detailed. It's like, like gone here, to furnish the victualler um, for the use of such of the prisoners as may not be able or willing to provide themselves with three quarters of a pound weight of beef, pork, or mutton and a pound of bread per day with a reasonable allowance of salt, vinegar, and fuel. So, you know, they, they wanted to make sure that um, they were they were fed well because George Washington was not going to allow the Americans to treat the British as the British were treating the Americans, which was not at all, uh, well, it was horrible, actually. It was just, it was, it was horrible. And, yes, there were some, there were some examples of harsh treatment to the British prisoners or the Tories 
but they were few and far between. And we didn't really keep the fleet prison um, for very long. Uh, let me see, where does it say that? Um, but anyways, Washington made it really clear because he knew how the British treated, um, like, the sailors because a lot of the, you know, the, the we had a small navy. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't an official navy, but it was what we could do. And the British ships would seize the, the American ships and take the American sailors and either throw them in prison or make them, um, you know, work on the, the ship. You know, shanghaied them, basically, kidnapped them. And they weren't treated well at all because they were you know, part of the rebels. So Washington was not going to allow this to happen. And uh, even before that, you know, Americans were different. They, they just, they weren't going to, uh, they didn't want to, um, I don't want to say lower themselves to that level, but they didn't want to, they didn't want to do it the same way because they were not the same. They were more dignified. They were more compassionate. And uh, and if you go to the this, this book, New York and the Revolution Supplement, on page 238, you will see and to to two forty one uh you will see the names of the British prisoners of war um, let's see now let me go to to the other let's see well the, and I'm glad you're doing this because i didn't every time I see something like this you know if you're you, my hair stand up like wait, whoa, 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 we need to debunk this, and that's what we do here on the show as well. We always debunk history because you did not learn it correctly. And I know from reading about other prison ships and women that helped the prisoners on their ships and brought them food and brought them comfort, I know from reading and you, that we've done it quite frequently here that the British were way more cruel than we were. So this definition, this description is wrong. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, no, there were, um, I did read about a ship where uh, the warden was horrendous and a lot of the prisoners died. But it was brought to the attention of whoever it needed to be brought to attention of um, at the time. And he was taken off. And the ship was put out of commission. It wasn't even. It wasn't in uh, a prison for very long because he was doing it, you know, harshly, and and it, so that the prisoners died. And George Washington also was very aware of the the uh, the class of uh, the rank, you know, where he he was not going to um, give back British officers. Uh, for American sailors or vice versa, um, or, you know, they, they weren't going to, he wasn't going to show the British any weakness. So, you know, he had a fine line to cross or to walk, but he did it with dignity and, and fairness and compassion. That's one thing about him um, that 
you know, I don't care what anybody says out there. They're lying if he, you know, yes, he was, um, he was firm in his commitments. I mean, he, he has some, well, you know, the, 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 during that period, you know, whipping was considered a form of punishment and other things that are supposedly beyond the pale today. Um, but he was more more merciful and fair than harsh. Like, you know, the British, they had a set of rules and, and, and they just went by them. It didn't matter a lot of time. So, okay, let me see now. Let me go here. This is from the... Um, the United uh, Empire Loyalist Association of Canada, and it's about the British ships of Esopus by Stephen Davidson. Um, okay, now, and almost completely, as he writes, an almost completely neglected re- aspect of the American Revolution is the imprisonment of loyalists on rebel prison ships. As the jails of the 13 colonies started to fill with loyalist inmates in the early years of the bitter Civil War, some rebel governments decided to combine their fellow Americans in the holds of stationary sailing ships, sometimes referred to as vessels for the disaffected, places of detention for disloyal and unsafe men, or fleet prisons. These anchored ships were used to incarcerate loyalists from 1776 to 1782. Historical records and personal testimonies indicate that at least three colonies kept their prisoners of war in floating jails, those being Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. The fleet prison of Kingston, New York, is the best known of these rebels, rebel jails, although it was a floating prisoner of war camp for less than a year. Nevertheless, it played a pivotal role in the story of many loyalists who later found refuge in modern-day Canada. As early as December 1775, the Provincial Congress, or Convention of New York, voted that the Ulster County Jail, located beneath the Kingston Courthouse, could be used for the incarceration of Loyalists. However, by March 18, 1777, the prison was so full and the prisoners so neglected and in such a horrid state that the convention passed a new resolution. The living arrangements for the prisoners confined beneath the convention chamber had become unwholesome. A very nauseous and disagreeable effluvia arose from their cells. Since this might endanger the health of the convention's members, it was moved that the members were free to smoke in the convention chamber for the preservation of their health. Of course, this only masked the stench of a crowded prison and did nothing for the prisoners. Two months later, the convention decided to establish prison ships to house loyalists. A committee was appointed to prepare for two or more vessels and anchor them in the Roundout River near Kingston, New York. This old Dutch settlement became the first state capital of New York in 1777. It was 146 kilometers north of New York City, then held by the British, and 90 kilometers south of Albany, considered a likely target for a British attack from Canada. Kingston was known once known as Esopus. I'm, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Esopus? Yeah, Esopus. The name favored by loyalists when they told of their imprisonment. The exact number of rebel ships is difficult to determine. One account says that several ships were built in May and June to serve as floating jails. Other ships were simply seized as story property. 
The convention ordered the seizures of a brigantine that belonged to Joseph Towers and David Mallow, two inveterate enemies of their country. Rebels took Mr. Spranger's vessel for a prison ship, the same fate which the fellow sloop owned in part by John Dole. Only two of the ships in the prison fleet are known to have names, the Camden and the Hut. Two weeks after the rebel convention ordered the creation of the prison ship, 175 loyalists were removed from Albany's courthouse jail and put aboard the vessels at Ephesus Landing. Anyone found on shore after being put on the ships was to be immediately executed. In less than a month, the loyalist prisoners' great complaints of starvation and cruelty prompted the convention to issue a set of rules for the care and custody of their inmates. It fell to John Floss Hobart, John Jay, and Jacob Kyler to regulate the fleet prison and appoint the required officers. And they appointed Henry Benson as warden and clerk, Charles Giles as victualler, and Cornelius Elmendorf as commissary. On paper, it looks like the prisoners would be receiving humane treatment. Benson was responsible for keeping the vessels at all times clean and neat, identifying which prisoners could not provide their own provisions and making out the accounts for what the prisoners owed the state when they were released. Friends of the prisoners could send them necessaries, but could only visit if they had a written order. No letters could be passed to prisoners without permission from the Committee of Safety. As clerk, Benson was to receive six shillings and a sixpence from every loyalist prisoner who was discharged. Giles regulated the wood given to the prisoners for fuel and old alterations, three-quarters of a pound of beef, beef, pork, or mutton, one pound of bread, a reasonable allowance of salt and vinegar, as I have I read from the other books. These rations were to be given out at least three times a week in the warmer seasons and twice a week in winter. The British gave their rebel prisoners a pound of biscuit, a pound and a half of flour, a pint of oatmeal, a pound of beef, two pounds of pork, two pounds of suet, two ounces of butter, and a half pound of each week. For their troubles, the victualler was paid nine pounds a month. Elmendorf received twice that amount as commissary. He made sure the victualler had the provisions he required and kept an account of how the money was spent. It was also his job to see that all of the hides, tallow, and wool that came from the livestock he purchased were preserved, presumably as a source of income. Elmendorf also had to see to it that local militiamen were posted to prevent inmates from escaping the fleet prison. These soldiers were drafted for a week's duty, often guarding men they had once called their friends and neighbors. Within a month, the prisoners' rations were considered too great and subsequently reduced. By September 1st, the convention authorized Dr. Luke Kerstead to visit the fleet prison at least twice a week or whenever called on by the warden. Two days later, Elmendorf commissary was chastised by the convention for failing to supply the prisoners with bread. Okay, so let's go on to the next one. Okay. Among the forgotten no, no, characters... No, 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 that's enough. Okay, that's yeah. Enough. We're we're anywhere near our memoirs. And it's yeah. already after seven. Oh, my goodness, that went by fast again. Yeah, I'm so glad you pulled me back because I could just go on and on, as you know. <laughs> Okay, so other rebels were content simply to insult and humiliate Hannah's family. American soldiers trapped in the Ingraham farm used to fire at a tree in which it was Ben Ingraham. When the fighting ended in 1783 with a rebel triumph, there was no place for Hannah and her family in the new United States. 
The soldiers of the King's American Regiment and their families were evacuated from New York on the William and King George, part of the fall fleet that reached St. John on October 4, 1783. From there, the Ingraham family made their way up the St. John River to St. Anne, the site of the future Fredericton. Here they settled down to live in peace for the first time in seven years. Now, I'm going to get into the places where she is, but I want to finish this part so then I can start her memoirs. Hannah Ingraham told her story when she was an elder adult, elderly adult. The simplicity of her language and the narrowness of her focus reflect a child's perspective, yet the general accuracy of her recollections is not in question. Another loyalist, Mary Fisher, married to Ludwig Fisher of the New Jersey Volunteers, followed the same route from New York to Fredericton and produced a narrative that both verifies many of Hannah Ingraham's assertions and adds numerous details. Oh, I don't care about that. Hannah Ingraham's reminiscences describe how, how war affected the child and her family. They lie at the heart of the story that, can, that will be told in the new Canadian War Museum. All right, so let me get back up here. All right, now you can tell them where she was. And now I'm going to start her reminiscing. Because it's important because... Well, let me just tell you really quick. They, the, the settlers that went before her got there like in, in summer and fall. So they had a chance to try to, you know, pretty much get themselves ready for winter. They did not. They came there in winter. And it, trust me, I'm in winter right now. We weren't right, ready this year, all right, up here. We needed to get wood up. We needed to get better, a way to get water. I needed to get better hoses because I have to haul water from a spring that's 200 yards away, just like in the olden days, okay? I don't have a well or nothing like that. I don't even know if I'll ever have one. There's tons of water in here. I'd rather develop the springs. That's cheaper, too. So I'm not, I was not ready. We got a freakish snowstorm up here that trapped my truck. Normally, I leave my truck in town. I have somebody come pick me up either with my truck or their vehicle. And then I run around to errands, and then they drop me off, and Brian picks me up in a snowmobile. That's what we have to do every winter. So Brian's using the snowmobile right now. We have a big sled. I get in the back of the sled, and he pals me in with all the stuff I have to bring down to fill up, and they take me off the mountain. Well, this year, I brought the truck back up, and we didn't have hardly had no wood put up because we had a lot of computer problems during the summer, which Brian is the only one that can work on computers. He's the only one. Um, I won't let anyone else touch my computers, and I, we need them. We do everything on the computers. All of my livelihood is on the computer. So, subsequently, we get this big dump of three feet of snow. Nobody predicted it. They said we were going to get one or two inches, and I told Brian that this is the last time I'm bringing up the truck. I'm going to park it down there next time I go down. Well, I didn't have a chance to do that because we got three feet immediately, like in two days. It just came down, and it wasn't stopping. So I know exactly what this little girl and her family are going through. They needed to be ready for winter, and they weren't. So anyway, tell them where they were, because they're in Canada, and it's up, on like 300 miles from the Canadian border. So but she's over at the, in the, uh, the East Coast. Yes. Okay, Fredericton, New Brunswick, is located in central New Brunswick, just below the head of 
tide on the St. John River, 135 kilometers inland from the Bay of Fundy. Okay, uh, let's see. The founding of Frederickstown between 1783 and 85 was in extra, in extra, oh, I can't say that word. Oh, there's always a word I can't say. It was highly interwoven with the attempts of the loyalists and their sympathizers to create a new province and a haven for the king's friends in British North America. Carefully planned ahead of this permanent settlement, Fredericton, named after Prince Frederick, second son of King George III, was to be their capital and the centerpiece of their new society. Um, in addition to assuming the seat of government with the creation of New Brunswick in 1784, Fredericton was to become a British military headquarters, a center of education and culture, and a stronghold for the Anglican Church. The capital was to take on an appropriately aristocratic flavor in contrast to the fledgling commercial entrepôt of St. John, already distastefully dominated by men in trade. Prior to the arrival of the Loyalists, both the advantages and disadvantages of the future site of Frederickstown had been realized by Native people in the Acadians. The Maliseet recognized the value of the scenic alluvial plain that had formed at the center, central inland river junction. It marked the terminus of an important por- portage route from the Miramichi River and for several generations was the site of Maliseet camps and burial grounds. So it was really a good trade route, you know, and, and this is the one part that, you know, we don't think very much um, about, but, you know, the Hudson Valley, all the way up through um, Canada, you know, New Brunswick and Halifax and all that area, um, you know, the British took it from the French and uh, in the French and Indian War, and we tried to take it during the Revolutionary War, but we didn't get to uh, get it from the British. So the Loyalists, if they didn't go to England, they went north, as did a lot of the black slaves that were freed by the British for having fought in the uh, on the British side. So this is a wonderful play, uh, place, and it goes on to say the strategic advantages of St. Anne's Point, um, which is where they end up, at first, as it became known, were not developed, however, until 1691 when Governor Joseph Robinot de Villabon <laughs> decided to establish the capital of Acadia at the mouth of the Nashwalk River. So it was a very wonderful place, and it was basically uh, for fur trade and the such for the French, and then it went over to the British. And let's see... Um, well, and, well, and but it was, but it was also very harsh because oh yeah, it wasn't. You know, there wasn't any Massachusetts. You know how the winters in Massachusetts are. That's right. brutal. And Vermont, yeah, no, that's brutal. It, it, it wasn't. It was. It was fur trading country. I mean, the Indians were there, you know, and the French traders had, you know, well, they didn't settle towns. They had trading posts and things so they could get supplies and whatnot, but they were out in the wilderness. This wasn't very much um, a settled area. Right. Okay, so now we're going to start with Hannah's memoirs. They call them reminiscences. I can't even say it. Wow, it's worked so long, too. 
Here we go. From, from the mouth of little Hannah and Graham, 1776 to 1783. My father lived in Concord, 20 miles from Albany. We had a comfortable farm, plenty of cows and sheep. But when the war began and he joined the regulars, they took it all away, sold the things, plows and all, and my mother was forced to pay rent for her own farm. What father had sown, they took away. For what mother raised after she paid rent, they let her keep. They took away all cows and sheep, only let her have one heifer and four sheep. Uncle had given me a sheep, and when he found we were like to lose it, he took it away and kept it from me. Little John, my brother, had a pet lamb, and he went to the committee man and spoke up and said, Won't you let me have my lamb? He was a little fellow, four years old, so they let him have it. Oh, my God, this is just... If I break up a little bit, ladies and gentlemen, it's because there were so many people involved in the Revolutionary War that sacrificed and suffered so that we could be free. And it breaks my heart that people are not willing to do that now. My father was in the Army seven years. They took grandfather prisoner and sent him on board a prison ship. Mother rode 50 miles on horseback in one day when she heard it, it to go to see him and take him some money to buy some comfort. He had a paralytic stroke when he was there, and he never recovered. Poor grandfather. My father was taken prisoner once, but he escaped. The girl who was sent to take him his supper one night told him she would leave the door unbuttoned, and he got off into the woods, but was wandering most two months before he found the army again. Mother was four years without hearing of or from father whether he was alive or dead, anyone would be hanged right now if they were caught bringing letters. Oh, they were terrible times. At last, there was talk of peace, and a neighbor got a letter from her husband and went inside for mother to tell her father was coming home. 1783. He came home on September 13th. It was Friday, and said we were to go to Nova Scotia, that a ship was ready to take us there, so we made all haste to get ready. Killed the cow, killed the cow, sold the beef, and a neighbor took home the tallow and made us a good parcel of candles and put plenty of beeswax in it in to make them hard and good. Uncle came down and thrashed our wheat, 20 bushels, and grandmother came and made bags for the wheat, and we packed up a tub of butter, tub of pickles, and a good store of potatoes. And then one Tuesday, suddenly, the house was surrounded by rebels, and father took prisoner and carried away. Uncle went forward and promised them who took him that if he might come home, then he would answer for his being forthcoming next morning. But no, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried, enough to kill myself that night. When morning came, they sent to say that he was free to go. I'll pause there for a minute, Yankee Mom, your thoughts? Oh, I just, oh, again, uh, whenever there's children involved, um, uh, you know, I, I, I still have the vision of that woman that we did that had to escape her house. She was a loyalist. She had to escape, or was she a patriot? Wait a minute, which one was it? Oh, I guess. Well, no. No, anyway. she, was, she was a patriot. She had 16 kids and an invalid husband. Yes, and, and. 
Well, there's this other one who had to leave. She had eight children and or six children, and she had to leave in the middle of the night. And the you know the the, the town was on fire, and and the British were bombing it, you know, with cannon and and the the Patriots, the Continental Army, and and this woman, this she was in her well, maybe she was in her 30s, I think, early 30s. And she had these six to eight children. I can't remember exactly. Babes in arm, and they carried on their little backs what they could take. And she oh. was just trying to get away. And, and I think about it doesn't matter whether you're a patriot or a loyalist if you're a mother. You're going to take care of your children. And I think of these little children and the, and, the, and the sacrifices these women make because a lot of the loyalist women, you have to remember, their husbands left, and they left them there. They either went into, you know, fighting with the British or they went to England um, or Canada, and they wanted their families to stay on the land so that they wouldn't be taken. So it was the women who had to defend the home, the property. And yeah. it didn't always work. Luckily, this family was together yeah. uh, finally at the end when he finally got home. And, um, you know, probably he was at home two days, and he says, pack it up, we're out of here. <laughs> well, and again, with the contrast, contrast even, even it doesn't matter what station you were in, okay? Like, right. A, a good example is her being a loyalist. She didn't know where her husband was for four years. Well, guess what? Abigail, I didn't hear from her husband for many, many, many years. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't matter. Um, you know, you, you, it's, that's, that's why, you know, I, I cringe when I hear people say they want another civil war. And, and no, no, you don't. No, 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 no. Let's, let's not do that again. Um, it's just that, like it said, you know, so, uh, on the fleet prisons, you know, these men were guarding their neighbors as prisoners, as the enemy. And here's these little children caught up in all of this and having to flee their home. It, let's see, she was 11 when they left uh, for uh, New Brunswick. You know. Yeah, I'm going I'm to get to that, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Okay, so she, so he was, her father was free to go. We have had five wagon loads carried down the Hudson on a, in a sloop, and if if I get through this and we still have time, I'm going to back you up and get you um, to uh, explain what some of this stuff is, so that they can have a better understanding. But I want her voice to come out right now. Yes. Uh, five wagon loads carried down the Hudson in a sloop, and then we went aboard the transport. That was to bring us to St. John. I was just I was just 11 years old when we left our farm to come here. It was the last transport for the season, and had it in it all those who could not leave sooner. The first transport had come in May, and so had all the summer before them to get settled. But this was the last part of September. We had a bad storm in the Bay of Fundy, which uh, Yankee Mom talked about. But some Frenchmen came off in a canoe and helped us. There were no deaths on board, but several babies were born. It was a sad, sick time after we landed. In St. John, we had to live in tents. The government gave them to us and rations too. 
It was just that the first snow then and the melting snow and rain would soak up onto our beds as we lay. Mother got so chilled with rheumatism that she was never very well afterwards. We came up the river at last in a schooner and were nine days getting to St. Anne's near what is called Salamanca. Uh, it was two months from the day we left our home at Concord till we reached St. Anne's. We were brought as far as Margerville in a schooner, but we had to get the rest of the way, 12 miles, walking, or any way we could, because the schooner could not get past the Oromocto Shoals. How did we get to our lots? This way. Captain Clements hired a rowboat of a man at Oromocto for three shillings a day for three days, and he set up his folks and their goods the first day. We did not know how long they would be, but they got there and back the same night. So he told us to get in. We were ready, goods and all, by sunrise. So we started. In other words, she hadn't slept all night. They will wait for these people to get back. So they were up the entire time. Um, we were plenty of single men. There were plenty of single men ready to row us for their passage up. But the man who had left the boat hollered. After us, he was riding along the shore on horseback. Bring back the bo that boat, he could get nine shillings a day for her, but the men rode on and did not mind his words, so he went away. You see, Captain Clemens had hired the boat for three days and paid for it, so he had a right to it. For this was only the second day. So, again, they're finding problems here. And on this essay, they have a picture of their their the Ingraham's family's first home in Canada with all the little tents and all the people around them that uh, were the loyalists that were refugees as well. Captain Clements was our next neighbor when we got to St. Anne's. At last, we got to our land, pitched our tent, and the boat went back for more. When the boat got back to Oromocto, the schooner was gone and had landed the last of the passengers. There was a poor widow with four children waiting to come, but none of the men there had the courage to put her aboard the boat or even to go aboard themselves, though we had a right to the use of it for another day, but it was paid for, and that poor woman had to sleep in a barn till the ice covered the river, and then some of the neighbors took a hand sled and hauled her up to St. Anne's 12 uh, miles. There were no roads then, you see, and the river was the only way of traveling. Actually, on uh, this day and age in Alaska, uh, up towards Bethel, that they, they call them ice highways. You can actually drive on them. And mm -hmm. they wait until the, the, you can't, well, you have to get up by boat, that was it. Actually, it was, they wanted me to work up in this area of Bethel. Um, I mean, so I could throw, where they wanted me to work in Kimon, I could throw a rock and hit Russia. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, they were they use them as they utilize the rivers as highways in the winter. They they still do to this day. Okay, um, we lived in a tent at St. Anne's till Father got a house raised. He went up through our lot till we found he found a nice fresh spring of water. He stooped down and pulled away the fallen leaves that were thick over it and tasted it. It was very good. So there he built his house. We all had rations given us by the government, flour and butter and pork, and tools were given to the men too. One morning when we walked 
one morning when we waked, we found the snow lying deep on the ground all around us. And then Father came wading through it and told us the house was ready and not to stop to light a fire then and not to mind the weather, but follow his tracks through the trees. Uh, that's what we're doing right now, believe it or not. The, the snow, Yankee Mom, flying mm-hmm. six foot four in places is up to his knees. Mm-hmm. So what we have to do, like what we had to do with the spring, I had him go out first, and then he made all the, you know, he, with his big long legs and packed a, a path that I could follow in his footsteps. And then yes. he came back the other way and packed in between. And then I went up and packed, so now we have, like, this path. And that's what we've been doing all around. <laughs> we have these paths with snow on the side <laughs> all over the place. Yeah, I let the dogs go first, and then I go in their little trails <laughs> when we had all our snow. Yep. Well, Brian's really, we have snowshoes, too, so we could actually pack them yeah. with snowshoes. But it's just a pain in that butt to just put them all on. It takes forever, and then, you know, mm-hmm. we might do that next year. Maybe if we get more snow, we'll do it. But that that's how I did it down in basement. That's how I packed down my entire driveway when I lived in Basin. And I lived in a little town. I mean, there was like 250 people there, but still it was a town. I didn't have a plow and stuff. I wasn't going to shovel. I said, Brian, you know, and he was sick. Um, I said, what do you, well, how am I, I have to get out of here. You know, I have to go to work in two days. He's like, put the snowshoes on and pack down the driveway. And guess what? That's exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. I have put the snowshoes on and I packed the driveway. And to tell you the truth, it was easier than shoveling. Yes. Because the, the snow here in Montana, if we don't get that spring snow, it's usually super fluffy because mm-hmm. it's so dry. Yes, yes. But I know exactly what this little girl's doing because I just did that the other day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but follow his tracks through the trees. The trees were so many that we lost sight of him coming, going up the hill. It was snowing fast and oh so cold. Father carried a chest, and we all took something and followed him up the hill through the trees to see our gable end. It was not long before we heard him pounding, and oh, what joy. There was no forelaid, no window, no chimney, no door, but we had a roof at last. A good fire was blazing on the hearth, and Mother had a big loaf of bread with us. And she boiled a kettle of water and put a good piece of butter in a pewter bowl, and we toasted the bread and all said, Thank God we are no longer in dread of having shots fired through our house. This is the sweetest meal I have tasted for many a day. Yes. And that's yep. Hannah. That's little Hannah. And she lived, um, oh, <laughs> She was 11 at the time, right? Yes, 83. Yes. Yes, yes. She was 11 years old, and then you have her, you have how old she was when she died. You have all that, right? Yes, let me get that up now. I, I had um, I had up Snoop and Sooner, because it's amazing when you think of what they, they traveled in during September and October, which was, that was not, the time of year you wanted to uh, be in the water. Now, you remember John Adams was sent to France in the fall, and it was horrendous. You know, he was lucky it wasn't as bad as it could have been. But another thing to think about, these people, um, 
we're coming into the uh, the the part of the year that you know they're not going south; they're going north. And it wasn't uh, oh gosh, where did my page go to? It wasn't like they were taking a, a you know night yachting adventure. They were in small ships. They weren't. I mean, that a sloop only has two. Well, they had three masts at the time, but they were very small. The sloop. Okay. Well, if you still have the sloop up, if you want to get into that, we can do that. Okay. Yeah, I do. I have that. Yeah, um, because that's why I wanted you to to um, research that because it was really important. They couldn't get everybody all at the same time and all of their belongings. And you know, some people had six and seven kids. You know, some people had twelve kids that were Mm -hmm. you know running away from the war. And, like, well, you explain to them, because I, I said the same thing. I said, you know, when I read her accounting of it, I was saying, all right, well, they're trying to do the logistics of getting all this stuff to where they have to go. And I also know how to do that, because I have to bring stuff, me and stuff down in this big sled, all right? And then I have to figure out how much I can bring down, how much I can bring up, the weight, because even though this is a pretty, you know, powerful snowmobile and it's packed trails, you don't want to put a huge strain on the on the, the machine because you'll you'll uh, the belt the first things that go on snowmobiles uh, are belts. They'll go. And then you're gonna to have to replace that. It's like a hundred dollars a pop. So you don't really want to put a lot of weight. And that's all factors that these people had to think of also. Yes. Yes. Well yeah, I mean they had to you didn't just go out your door with your coat on and your boots on, you know, and your purse in your hand. You you had to go with enough food for your whole family to get by and and having make sure you have enough clothing. I mean, yeah, you could fall into a, a creek and get wet. And you, you yeah, oh, it, it's just amazing what these people did, and it's amazing what people can do. And this is what we've gotten away from. I mean, that's I I, I watch a lot of um, movies where they they come against adversity and. And come on out the other side of it. And my husband, why do you watch these movies where it's, you know, horrible men? Yeah. And I said, because that's life. You got to get through it to the other side. You got to climb the mountain and get down. And it's amazing to me what people are capable of doing. Okay. Now. Okay. Well, before we go on, I do want to thank you in the new year. Uh, for being my support system because this has been a really bad year for me, and I'm one of those I'm one of those people that have to do almost what these people do on a daily basis. Yes, yes. See, I'm getting out of it this winter. I don't have to haul wood or anything because I'm down in Texas instead of in Virginia. <laughs> so I got away from the uh, the wood hauling and all that, and the cutting and everything. Um, and and hopefully the 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 well will stay healthy. Okay, so the sloop. Um, a sloop of war was quite different from a civilian or mercantile sloop. And that was a general term for a single-masted vessel rigged like what we would today call a gas cutter, but usually without the square top sails, then carried by cutter-rigged vessels though some sloops of that type did serve in the 18th century British Royal Navy, particularly on the Great Lakes of North America. Now, um, so it it didn't really say whether she was in a a sloop of war or just a, I I believe it was like a civilian 
tight swoop, which was had one mass. A single yeah, she, I, yeah, I think that's yes, exactly. I'm just, you keep going, I'm going to look it up. Basically a sailboat. So they were, were going north in late September into October in a sailboat, you know, and... Uh, so that that's I mean that was what they got um on it, they were on a schooner first which is uh a bit bigger it has um two or more masts typically with a foremast smaller than the main mast and having gaff rigged lower mast so um I don't know much about sailing cuz I've never done much about it so these words really don't mean anything to me except when I look at the pictures. And the schooner uh, is, seems to be uh, larger than the uh, sloop, but not by much, you know. <laughs> they were in a very big ship. And, which, you know, going on this this uh, jaunt up north. And if you look at a, a aerial map, which they do have, if you go over to um, look up uh, Fredericton, they have a, a map of, a, a, like, an aerial map of the area, and you can see St. John's River going through it. And it's quite quite the country, even now. So that's, uh, what else was I supposed to be looking up now? I, I had something, oh, her, her, the, uh, her life here. Let's see. Okay, let's find out when... Um, was that it? Oh, no, that wasn't. Hold on, people. We will find it. Uh, that is either. She died in 1869 at 97 years of age. Um, it, it's really very interesting that uh, she lived. Oh gosh, where did that go? This is Stop it. Um, let's see. This is. Yeah, and she moved in. Uh, let's see. She died the 18th of March in 1869 on Bear Island, New Brunswick, which is where her um, her little brother Ira, who was born up there, he was born. Um, I guess within the first three years they were up there, Ira was born in. She never married. Uh, she stayed. She lived with her parents until her father died in 1810. And she lived with her brother, um, Ira Ingraham, and his family at Bear Island on the outskirts of Fredericton. Uh, you can still see Ira Ingraham's house, and uh, it's restored to its 1840s condition at King's Landing historic site. And uh, Hannah lived in a small room off the kitchen where she would draw warmth from the kitchen fire. She would have been called a spinster or old maid. Um, the term spinster derives from the custom whereby unmarried female children were usually assigned the task of spinning the cloth, essential for the family wardrobe. Unmarried women were often the object of pity and scorn because they had failed to make the transition from a young maid to housewife. As mistress of her household, a woman's 
discharge of important economic and social functions for a family and reproduce the next generation of family labor. But she did not do that. Instead, she lived to be 97 <laughs> and had a wonderful life. Uh, seems like they were a very close family, which is really, um, which was a good thing with all that you know they had to go through. And getting settled up at uh, St. Anne's Point, which was renamed Fredericton in 1784. But it was was definitely a pioneer life uh, when they were there. I mean, you know, you figure she had lived up in uh, New Concord, which wasn't exactly urban uh, or well-settled. It was agricultural and still Indians all around and um, then she moved even further into the wilderness with her family. So, it's very, uh, so many of these women, what they went through. I know. Well, and there's another account of them landing at Anne's, St. Anne's from a Mary Fisher's point of view, and I'm going to read it really briefly. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the women that were with them. Soon after we landed, we joined a party bound up the river in a schooner to St. Anne's. It was eight days before we got to Oromocto, where the captain put us ashore, being unwilling on account of the lateness of the season or for some other reason to go farther. He charged us each $4 for the passage. We spent the night on shore, and the next day the women and children proceeded in Indian canoes to St. Anne's with some of the party, the rest came on foot. So that's exactly what you were talking about, the time of year it was. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want to go any further. And then he just like dropped him off and said, that's it. Yes, because um, as you found out this year, the snows can come any time. And they didn't have the wonderful meteorologists that we have today <clears throat> um, to tell them when it was going to snow next. You know, it, 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 you, you took your chances. If you got on a any kind of ship after August, you know, you were you were looking for trouble. So, well, but if you want to learn more about um, about the 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 war and what led up to it, and what came out of it, and what happened in between. The uh, Journal of the American Revolution over at allthingsliberty.com is really a wonderful place. They have all their archives up of their articles, and you can put in a search and find find out more. Um, they have book reviews and all sorts of things. and uh, It's really a great place to go because you, God, you, you think about uh, what's our children are being taught in school today, which isn't much of the truth, and it's really important that you, uh, well, as they said in the 60s, here Crosby, Stills, and Nash, teach your children well. And here's another Mary Fitch's account, and this is exactly what you were just talking about, because, and again, you're right, this is what happened to us. We've been here for eight years, this is the first year that we bet this has happened. The first year that we got caught mm-hmm. with a horrible storm and not no wood and a whole bit. Brian's going out and cutting wood every day. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
But like I said, we had to have these computers fixed, and it took months and months and months. It was just a nightmare. But exactly, we could get snow the first week of September. As a matter of fact, most of the time here, we do get snow in October, but it just melts off. Yeah. But, and we got snow October, we got snow in November, and some snow stuff around November. But this was a complete surprise and a complete dump. So, anyway, Mary Fisher, this is when they got to St. Anne's. The season was wet and gloom, what was wet and cold, and we were much discouraged at the gloomy prospect before us. Those who had arrived a little earlier had made better preparations for the winter. Some had built small log huts. This we could not do because of the lateness of our arrival. Snow fell on the second day of November to the depth of six inches. Yeah, we got a foot the first day of the snowstorm. We pitched our tents in the shelter of the woods and tried to cover them with spruce boughs. We used stones for fireplaces. Our tents had no floor but the ground. The winter was very cold with deep snow, which we tried to keep from drifting in by putting a large rug at the door. The snow, which lay six feet around us, helped greatly in keeping out the cold. Believe it or not, uh, snow is an insulator. Most mm-hmm. people don't know that, right? No, well, well, they should, especially if they go skiing or anything up in the mountains. Well, that's why they really, they really do make igloos. I mean, yeah. it's an art form. Yeah, well, if you, if you watch an animal, they'll, go, they'll burrow under the snow. You know, if you go out in the winter and you see the deer nest, you know, where they laid for the night, which we have them, they, they live in our woods. And, you know, I can I go up into the woods and I can see where they nested for the night. And, and if it snows, you know, they'll, they'll dig and surround themselves with the snow. Yep. Make a, make a deer nest. How we lived through that awful winter, I hardly know. Sometimes a part of the family had to remain up during the night to keep the fires burning, so as to keep the rest from freezing. And actually, I have done this because I don't have the nice little wood stoves that you have. Um, That's why at night we heat with with propane, because my stoves have to be, uh, what do you call it, fed all the time. I don't have the Mm -hmm. nice ones that you can put a, a big log in and it's good for the night. Um, and when we were in Basin, we had, we that's one of the reasons we rented that house. Brian wanted to heat with wood. He didn't want to have to pay for uh, propane and stuff like that. And um, I would have to get up in the middle of the night because you, you start to feel it right away. You could feel when the, the, <laughs> the wood stove has gone out. It's like, okay, it would wake me up. So I'd get up in the middle of the night. I'd stoke the fire. I'd put more wood in, and it usually would last, like, to the beginning of the morning, and I'd have to get up again. Well, I got up with the dog anyway, and put her out, soak the fire again, and then go back to bed. So I was working evenings at that time. But, yeah, I know exactly what this is like. <laughs> you have to have somebody keep the rest of them from freezing. They have to keep the fires burning. That's where that come, expression comes from, right, Yankee Mom? Yes. Yeah, keep the home fires burning. That's what the loyalist women had to do if their houses weren't taken away from them. Yeah, you couldn't let the fire go out. I mean, these women cooked on these fires. That's why if you go into a into a, a, a 18th century house, you'll notice the fireplaces and 
these women, they were going all the time. And you banked them down at night so that you would have coals in the morning to start your morning fire. And you had to get up in the middle of the night and feed the fire during the winter or you were, everything would freeze. Your, your house would be as cold outside or inside as it was outside. So you had to keep the fires burning. And in the summer, you banked it and you, you made sure there were coals. And they had coal pots where you, um, in the bigger houses, they would, they would put the coals in the pots and carry them to the next fireplace in case it had gone out. But there were always coals. You couldn't be without a fire because it, it, it dried your clothes. It, it cooked your food. It kept the house warm. In the summer, it was a pain in a lot of places. You know, especially down south, had summer kitchens, which were outside. But the fireplace was, you know, that was, you know, the heart of the home. And that, you know, you didn't want, and that's why, if you do go into these houses, you know, in the the 17th and 18th century, you will see how low the ceilings were. Well, kept the room warmer. High ceilings are, are a pain to keep Yeah, that's warm. why I didn't. Well, I'm going to finish this account, and then I want to talk a little bit more about that because, yeah, that's what I do here. Um, I'm drying clothes, like especially if Brian goes out in the snowmobile, he comes back, he's all wet. Um, I dry them in front of the fire, in front of the wood stove. That's how it's mm-hmm. done up here. Yeah, that's <laughs> what we do. We put the boots right on top. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Get those boots nice and dry. Um, okay, so it says... Some of the destitute ones made use of boards, which the older ones kept heating before the fire and, pl- and applied by turns to the smaller children to keep them warm. Many women and children and some of the men died from cold and exposure. Graves were dug with axes and shovels near the spot where our party had landed, and there in stormy winter weather our loved ones were buried. You know, um, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done that. Like for a couple of times, we've had a couple of chickens die up here in the winter, and I just found a real, real deep place of snow, what snow, and I dug it out and I put the chicken in it because I'm not, we we're not going to put an axe. There's no way in heck you can put an axe to this ground. At like it, even in November, it starts freezing already because we're so high up, we're at 7,000 feet. So the ground freezes right away. I mean, their ground, they're lower, they have probably lower altitude, and they were by the um, rivers and oceans. So that their soil is completely different. Up here, ours is, as soon as first frost, you're done. You are just done digging. It's <laughs> over. Um, so what I did is I just took the, um, the we took the chicken. Well, Brian did because I didn't want to touch it. And I just dug a hole and I put the snow on top of it. And I would go out and check like once a week. And I put you know a sign that it was there. And I'd go out and check once a week to make sure it was still covered in snow until the ground unfroze. These guys burying these met these people. I yeah no you something happens up here you're gonna wait till fall. <laughs> well you could I mean you know it, it's it's different but you also have to remember what type of people these were. These were religious folk and these were their neighbors and you took care of that. You didn't let. You know, Sam, Sam, uh, uh, well, Miss, 
lay there. Um, they didn't have a nice house to put them in. They had to be treated with respect so that they would do that, you know. Um, they would do that. Okay, well, we have about 10 minutes left, and there are some things I want to discuss in this new year. And one of them is, well, yeah, we have about six minutes left. One of them is to remind everybody out there, this, I'm calling this the year of education. You need to go out and educate yourself about our founding and our history. You need to start educating your brothers, your sisters, your aunts, your uncles, your children, your neighbors, because we're losing not only our history, we're losing our identity, and we're losing our country. And the best way to go out and do that is by going to Prokshu, or you can just do a search on the Internet for Patriots Pub, patriotspub.us, patriotspub.us. You can listen to the episodes live. It was a three-year project by my husband, Tim Curlin, who got the Yankee Mom and I together um, unfortunate, under unfortunate circumstances as he died very young and untimely. But from him, this show sprang. Yeah. And he and Brian Bonner and um, Troy LaPlante, all three are self-taught scholars the Patriots Pub is the Constitutional Convention of 1787, day by day by day. It took them three years to, to do the project, and they read Madison's notes on air. And you will know what this Constitution means from listening to the men from their voices that were written down in their opinions and why they decided to write the Constitution the way they did. The reason why it had to be rewritten was because the, the Articles of Confederation, which was the first quote-unquote Constitution or set of laws that our, the United States was under during the Civil War, uh, during the well, Revolution, was it? So during the Revolutionary War, we had to set up a government so that we could be um, recognized by other countries. And to do that, you either have to do a charter which we would discuss when we were talking about the colonial list coming over here, or you could do a constitution. So the Articles of Confederation were not working. The states said, we have to fix this, and they sent delegates to fix it. And from that came the constitution. So please, you can also download them and record them into your MP3 player. When you're sitting in traffic, you'll have something to listen to. So go to Patriots Pub. PatriotsPub.us. Please educate yourself. We're losing this country. Yes. Do you have something to say to the folks out there for the new year? Well, yes, definitely. I have quite a bit to say, but we won't get we won't have time. No, first of all, of course, being a uh, a mother of a uh, staff sergeant army daughter, um, I of course, as, as I always say at the end of the program, pray for our kids in uniform. Um, it's, it's not. It's going to get uglier before it gets better, and I just hope cool heads prevail so our children are put into harm's way unnecessarily, as they have been lately. Uh, but, you know, send them a cup of joe. Go over to Green Beans Coffee 
Facebook.com and, and pay two bucks and send somebody out there who's away from his family or her family and buy him a cup of coffee. It's a, it's a great way to, to support our troops if, you know, don't have anybody over there. And again, pray for um, pray for wisdom amongst those who should be wise. And get out and vote this coming year. Look at your, especially vote local. Um, get to know your local representatives and make sure they know who you are. By God, make sure they know who you are. So, um, I hope you have a great uh, year this year and it's going to be an important year. So keep your ear to the ground and your powder dry. Pray for our kids in uniform and as always, good night, Loki. We miss you so.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.